Why Love Heals is the title of a book written in 2009 by Dr. Shane Schrock. I have not read the book, but one of the blurbs says the following things about it. The book reveals considerable evidence that scientific proof and scientific proof that love heals. Dr. Schrock served as director of mind-body medicine for a physician management group of 40 cancer centers. Here he found that his cancer patient lived much longer than those receiving only conventional medical care. His research concluded that the difference was that they felt loved and cared for. That is when he realized healthcare must address the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Connecting with someone emotionally and spiritually is the essence of life and health. End of quote. Now, I'm not doing publicity to this book. I am actually not able to tell you how accurate the research is. But this morning, I can confidently tell you about a love that can heal us. Not of our physical diseases, but of a much worse disease. I want to tell you about the love of God, which has the power to heal the most incurable diseases, the most devastating of diseases, namely the rebellious nature of our hearts. This is the message of the book of Hosea, that Israel's idolatry, Israel's prostitution can be healed. God has provided a way to turn a prostitute into a committed lover and into a radiant bride. Only God can make this happen. And this is a hope on which Hosea ends. This is our last sermon in the book of Hosea. As difficult as this book has been because of its provocative nature of prostitution, because of the heavy emphasis on God's nature and God's judgment, this book ends on an incredibly glorious picture of God's eternal love, a bountiful love, a generous love, a healing love. The provocative picture of prostitution on, this, on which this book developed is nothing else but the perversion of love and the betrayal of marital commitment. It is a painful experience of love in a broken world among rebellious people. And the last chapter of this book includes God's love song for his wife. His, for his people, the transition from Israel's prostitution to God's love song, however, takes a path of repentance. And this is how chapter 14, the last chapter of the book of Hosea, begins with a picture of true repentance and then a picture of God's love song. And this is the theme of my message this morning. Repentance and God's love song. Would you open scripture to Hosea chapter 14? We'll read an incredibly short passage compared to everything we've read so far in the last few weeks. We will read nine verses from verse 1 through verse 9 of chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord for us and for our congregation this morning. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take all iniquity and accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, Our God, to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will live them freely, and my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruitfulness. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Amen. This is was the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we reach the end of this series on the book of Hosea, we thank you that you have left your people with a testimony of your love. Despite the judgment, despite the, the heavy image that you have brought against your people, Father, we thank you for the love that surpasses your judgment. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to your people and to us. And we pray that you speak to our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in just a few words, we will see once again the major ideas of this book. But then we, throughout these ideas, we will see a picture of bountifulness that we have never seen in this book, we have never seen before. Instead of war and destruction, we see a picture of amazing beauty. Instead of betrayed love, instead of prostitution, we see a picture of committed love, and its effects are described in language that is similar to the Song of Solomon. At the end of this story, God will give his people a divine love song. This is how Hosea ends. And this picture of God's lavish love includes two calls that bookend this picture of of God's love, a call to repentance and a call to wisdom. Let's look at each of these calls as God's love song is portrayed before us. A call to repentance. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Return, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. And this call is given again in in verse 2 when it says, 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. This is what the Lord has been desiring from Israel from the beginning of the book. God wanted his people to come back to him, not just to change a few things in their lives, not just to change a few things in their worship. God wanted his people to come back to him, to God alone. Friends, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is a storyline, the desire that God had. Look at verse 1. Why? Why is it that God desires his people to come back? For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The stumbling Hosea talks about was not visible to their physical eyes. Do you remember what we've said about Hosea's time? Political alliances and the economy was going great. They had no reason to think that as a nation they were stumbling. But Hosea says, For you have stumbled in your iniquity. How did Israel stumble? If it was not through their material blessings, through their economic welfare, how did Israel stumble? Well, the entire book has been answering this question by exposing Israel's idols, their foreign alliances, their trust in their own resources to protect themselves, and the adoption of Canaanite symbols in their worship of God. By doing these things, they stumbled in worshiping God for who He was. They lost their sense of God's holiness and of His greatness. They lost their sense of their own sinfulness. They lost their trust in God's provisions. These sins caused them to lose their connection with God. A connection they did not know they lost. These sins caused them to mess up their relationship to God, even if they didn't realize it. Friends, there is a stumbling that many people experience even though they don't see it with their physical eyes. And this is a word part of, of this kind of stumbling. Even though at the present time, people's comforts may not be affected at all, they have sold out their souls pursuing the idols of our world, and thus they have lost their spiritual balance. They are tripping up their relationship to God. What made Hosea's message hard to believe is the fact that the outward human comforts were not affected by their sin. If anything, they prospered. It was hard for them to see their stumbling. What about us? What about us? Are we inclined to think this morning that we're better off than, than the people of Hosea's time? Think for a moment throughout this last six weeks as we heard these difficult messages of Israel's unfaithfulness. Have you ever comforted yourself in the last six weeks by this thought? Well, we are not as bad as Hosea's people. We are living in the New Testament after all. And we are Baptists. If that doesn't do it, nothing will do it. 
Are we inclined to think of ourselves self-righteously? Friends, are we inclined to think that we have no reason to return to the Lord because we rationalize that we've never left Him? The prophet encourages people not only to return to the Lord, but he tells them how to do so. Unlike the false repentance that we have seen in chapters 6, 7, and 8 a few Sundays ago, here's what is involved in true repentance. In verse 2, the prophet encourages people what to say. Look at, look at verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Now, Hosea is not saying here that repentance is composed only of words. Not at all. The prophet asks them to express in words what they have done wrong. Verbalizing wrongdoing helps us think through what exactly we need to change. This repentance is not just a blanket repentance for generalities, but we are called to have some specific behaviors and attitudes, bring them before God and repent of them. Now, the Israelites brought three specific things in, in their prayers. Let's look at what exactly they, 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 they included in this prayer. In verse 2, it begins with a request to God to lift up iniquity. Look at verse 2. Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay the bulls with, with bulls the vows of our lips. Notice their prayer begins with a request for God to remove the iniquity, their iniquity, and accept what is good instead. Now we have to be careful that we don't conclude that our sins can be replaced by our good. That is not what Hosea's people are doing here. The good refers to what God considers to be good. And in the context of Hosea, the good is defined by the call to repentance that God has been giving to this nation from the beginning of the book. Repentance begins with a conviction of sin and a desire that God would take it away. Friends, let me ask you, how often do you engage in this kind of prayer? How often do we as a church ask God to take away our iniquity? Second of all, this prayer includes a list of specific changes that they want to commit to make. Look at the three the, the changes the Israelites were committing to make. First of all, Assyria shall not save us. In other words, we will not rely on political allies to get us out of trouble. This was a huge change for Israel. Because throughout this book, it was these foreign alliances that Israel was making in order to provide for their security. And now Israel says, we will not have Assyria save us. Here's the second one. We will not ride on horses. Bob, did you hear that? We will not ride on horses. Now, those of you who love horses, do not think that the Bible is against horseback riding. Israel's problem, however, was that they relied on their horses for their military power. Horses were the currency of military power and success. So for them to say, we will no longer ride on horses, it's as if they're saying, we will no longer rely on our dollars to grow our lives, to grow our churches, 
It is as if we would say today, we will no longer rely on needing members to meet budget. It is as if we were to say, we no longer rely on a vibrant, exciting music ministry in order to grow the church. It is as if we would say, we will no longer rely on blank to grow this church. Whatever that blank would be. We will no longer rely on our horses. And finally they say, we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. By this, Israel was rejecting the practice of idolatry. Worshipping the works of their own hands. Now what's amazing about this list is the specific changes they commit to make. This is the heart of repentance, dear friends. A turning away from sin and a turning to God. Such a turn always has specific manifestations. I wonder how often do we think of repentance as being more than just telling God I'm sorry. I wonder how often do we think of repentance as being more than just telling God I'm sorry. Does our repentance include specific commitments to turn away from actual idols? What would be those idols? And then this prayer ends with a renewed trust in God. The third aspect that this prayer contains, the first one was a request for God to take away petition, the, the iniquity. The second is a list of specific things they're renouncing. And thirdly, there's a renewed trust in God. And we see this renewed trust in a very bizarre praise. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Why talk about the orphan in a prayer of repentance? And here, why talk about orphans here? An orphan is someone who no longer has parents to raise him up, to teach him how to walk, to care for him, to prepare him for life, to pay for his education, to buy him nice clothes and nice toys, to buy him an iPad. Orphans have little human means of security, little human help. They are at the mercy or abuse of others because their own families are gone. The picture of an orphan, however, is not used here to raise pity for them, but to raise our trust in a God who loves to pour His mercies on those who have no other object of trust but God alone. This picture of an orphan finding mercy in God concludes this picture of repentance by showing that a change of heart has taken place in Israel. A change of heart has taken place in Israel. Israel will be the orphan. They will be taken out of the land. But despite such devastation, they will have a renewed trust in the God who provides mercy for the orphan. Their prayer of repentance... Their prayer of repentance included a petition for God to take away the iniquity, a list of specific sins they were turning away from, and a renewed trust in God alone. That's a prayer of repentance. But as we look further, 
as we look at this prayer, I wonder, I wonder what our prayers of repentance should include. Can we acknowledge our iniquity? Can we plead to God to take away our sin and to do away with our wrong thinking, our worldly thinking? What are some idols we have given into? I wonder if we could see ourselves with the eyes, if we could see ourselves with the eyes of an orphan, having no one but God to go to. Could we see ourselves this way? Could we praise God for being that kind of a God? Some of you may struggle to identify contemporary idols. Say, ah, we're not sure we're really struggling with big things. We are a really good church, or we are really good people. Well, let me help you with at least two idols that I see in our world today. Idols that affect all of us individually, and they affect us corporately as well. The idol of self-centeredness. We live in a me-centered society. Even church is often done in such a way as to cater to me-centered people without asking them to forsake the idol of self-centeredness. Such people say, if church doesn't help me, or if, if it makes me feel uncomfortable, I'm not going there. Or, here's a, here's a good one, and this is very specific to our context. If a church puts too much emphasis on membership, I'm not going there. Because I don't want to commit to them. I just want to enjoy church without submitting to the authority of the church. Christians who worship the idol of me-centeredness. And some of you this morning might be still worshiping that idol. For such people, church is not primarily about God, but about them, what they get out of it. Here's another idol. The idol of feelings. We live in a feeling-driven society. So we say, if it makes me feel good, it must be good. Or we say, if it makes me feel good, it must be true. And we bring the cult of feeling worship into God's worship. Friends, even our talk about God oftentimes starts with a phrase, I feel God must be this way. Do you ever say that? I just feel God would do this. Or I just feel God would not do this. Worshipping the feeling idol, even while we claim that we worship God. We have turned away from God's revealed truth in the Bible to our feelings about that truth and about what God must be like. So we stumble in our daily decisions because we would rather go after what our feelings say about God than what God says about himself. We also evaluate good worship services by how emotionally we are engaged in it. So if a worship service made us cry and just get on an emotional high, it must have been a very good worship service. 
But friends, the heart of biblical worship is not our good feelings, but our submission to God. We could go on about many other idols in our culture. These are just two that I could point out that we still worship and that we are inclined to bring into our worship of God. Friends, what are the idols that we bring to God? And we want to weave in and say, God and something else. Yes, we want to worship God, but we want to worship something else also. God and something else. The worst part about what the Israelites were doing is they were not even realizing that they were including these other idols in their worship of God. That's why a prayer of repentance asks God to take away the iniquity. It makes specific commitments to turn away from idols and has a renewed trust in God. And after this prayer, we see God's response beginning with verse 4 all the way to verse 8. And this is God's love song. According to verse 4, God is accepting. Finally, after every word of this prayer, God is finally accepting their repentance. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. Their stumbling is now described as an apostasy, as a turning away from God. But God will heal it. Can you imagine what a good news this must have been? For so many times throughout this book, God says, I will not heal you. I will not stop the destruction. And finally, God says, I will heal your apostasy. What a joy. What a news to people who all they've heard for 13 chapters was destruction, 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 and more destruction. Friends, only God can heal the apostasy of Israel. They cannot heal themselves. And God assures them of, this, of His free love for His people and turning His anger away from them. And this healing process begins in chapter 5. Here's how the healing process begins. It begins not with a picture of what God will do for Israel. It begins with a picture of what God will be for Israel. Look at verse 5. I will be like the dew to Israel. That's it. I will be like the dew to Israel. Now this comparison may not signify much to us unless we understand something about the Mediterranean world. From April to October, in the Mediterranean hemisphere, there is no rain. So without the dew, the agricultural season would be cut short. And we know what that looks like, because we live in it. But in the Mediterranean world, God would provide dew every morning, so that the dew would be the source of agricultural growth from April to October. And God is saying that He is comparing Himself to the dew of Israel. When Isaac blessed his son in Genesis... God, Isaac said, told um, Jacob, God give you the dew of heaven. It was the desired blessing in Israel. The dew was critical for a prosperous agricultural season. And God says now to his, in his response to the prayer of repentance that he will be to them like their dew. 
Israel had a wrong view of God, a small view of God. They considered others to be their providers, and God wants to correct their vision of God because God will renew Israel's view of God. Here's what will happen to them. And this is the juicy part. Ephraim shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrances like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. They shall, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God is using pictures from nature to describe Israel's restoration. And we could divide these pictures in the following four categories. First of all, freshness. The dew, fragrances, the beauty, the shade, all of that is an image of freshness. Then there's stability. A picture of stability. The trees of Lebanon who are growing their roots deep. Then there's a picture of vigor. Uh, the spreading shoots of new growth. The growth of the vine or the flourishing of the grain. And then there's the picture of fame. The fame like the wine of Lebanon. I don't know how famous the wines of Lebanon have been, but apparently they must have been very famous because now they're compared to something exuberant. Friends, God will bring freshness, stability, vigor, and fame to His people, but all of these will happen as the people will dwell beneath His shadow. The picture of nature that are used here are not only to resemble the Song of Solomon, but the picture of nature that is used in this passage is describing, actually, and resembling the picture of the Garden of Eden. The beauty, the freshness, the stability, the growth of that garden. It was in that garden that man turned away from God. And God now promises a time when He will bring His people back to Himself. And God describes that experience by using the language of the Garden of Eden. point of all this is not simply what God will do to them, but what God will be to them. God's restoration will come to His people as a result of a renewed vision of God as their only and exclusive provider. Friends, our greatest need today, our greatest needs today are not God's blessings. Our greatest need today is a fresh picture of God. If God would only show Himself to us again in a fresh way, if God would only renew in us a picture of who He truly is, that is the greatest need we have. We don't need more members to help with a budget. We don't need a choir. I know some of you would really like that. I know some of you would really like more members to have more people to do ministry. Our greatest need is God. And I say this very practically. This is not just a cliche. I hear some of you very well intended, and I don't think you, you have a bad intention at all. Oh, if we just had more of this. 
And I want to say, let's repent of that. Let's stop saying if we just had more of blank. And from this day on, from July 1st, 2012, we would say if we had more of God in our midst. If we could look to God as the one who is our due, as the one who is the source of fruitfulness, if we would not remember the days when this church would used to be big and all the classes were filled and, oh, cry for those good old golden age days. If we would just say, all we need is God. What about you personally, at a personal level? What is it that you need to say no to and say, all we need is God? Dear friends, look at the way God says this. O Ephraim, in verse 8, this, is, this idea is, 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 is continued. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and who look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. This is the last question in the book of Hosea. God had asked the people many questions. This is the last one. O Ephraim. What have I to do with idols? Pursuing idols is so dangerous because God has nothing to do with them. God does not hire subcontractors to take care of us. God can look after His own people on His own. He does not want us to fall in love with His subcontractors and forget about God. God wants to put our trust in Him alone and always go to Him first. In Genesis 41, we are told that the name Ephraim had the following meaning. Joseph gave this name to his second son. Here's why. Joseph said, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The story of Joseph, whom God has raised even though he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, and then even after his experience, he, even though he tried to be an honest man, somebody lied on him and he was thrown into prison. And yet God, God alone, nobody, nobody was there, but God alone to make Joseph fruitful and make him the second after Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And Joseph, because of that fruitfulness that he found only in God, he, put his, he gave his second son the name Ephraim. Which means, in God alone is my fruit. How sad that hundreds of years later, Ephraim has lost the meaning of its name. And God now has to come back to them and teach them again the meaning of their own name. From me alone comes your fruit. Dear teenager, Think of the choices you make. Think of the desires you have. Do you look at what your favorite heroes do for your choices? Do, you, do they inspire your dreams and hopes? Or do you look to God to guide you? Dear young adult, where do you turn to when you look to be successful and fruitful? Do you look at your network of relationships 
as a ladder of advancing in your career? Do you aspire for a great career so you could be happy, so you could provide well for your family, so you could live a fruitful life? Dear adults, where do you turn for your protection? To your savings? To your job security? Do you consider your diet as a source of your health? I'm not saying that eating healthy is not good, but are you turning to your diet in order to find health in your body? Church members, where do we turn when we encounter needs in our church? God wants us to find Him as our fruit, to find Him as a source of our fruitfulness. The healing of our hearts happen when we realize what God says in verse 8. God has nothing in common with idols, and from God comes our fruitfulness. Now remember what, God, what we said last week, that these promises are given not simply to individuals, but they're given to God's people as a whole. How amazing that century later, centuries later, God sent His Son to be with His people. And right before the crucifixion, the last teaching Jesus gave to His disciples was... I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And later he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and fruit that should last. Friends, the prophecy of Hosea is a foreshadow of what Christ will be for his people. Christ will be the source of fruitfulness for his people. Christ will be the shepherd who will look after them. Through his death on the cross, Christ took upon himself the punishment of his people. And only because of Christ it is possible for God to take away our iniquity and to receive the good. Not our good, but the good of Christ. He is the good teacher. It is only because of Christ that God can restore a sinful wicked and rebellious people. My friend, if you have never followed Christ in a real way, God is inviting you to return to Him. You have stumbled in your sin. You deserve rightly to be under God's condemnation. He is a holy and perfect God and cannot accept sin in His presence. But He sent Jesus to take away our sin, to take it upon Himself, to die on the cross as a sign of God's curse against Him. But God raised Jesus from the dead to show that He has the power to give us a new life and to show that He has the power to pay the price of our rebellion. And only those who respond to Him in repentance and faith after being convicted of their guilt, only they receive God's pardon and God's new life. Friend, if you have ever heard this invitation of the gospel before, but you have never made a conscious and deliberate choice, decision to turn to God in faith and repentance, I invite you today, turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Trust in God that He is a God who can take care of you. He will take care of your spiritual needs. He will take care of your physical needs. If you'd like to know more about this Jesus, if you'd like to turn more, to turn to Him in faith and repentance, come and talk to me at the end of the service. I would love to talk to you. The book of Hosea ends on a powerful call 
to the wise. Look at verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. The last verse of Hosea begins with the words, whoever. That includes you and me. Whoever is wise, let him hear, let him understand these things. Friends, Hosea's message was not only for the people of Hosea, of Hosea's time, but the message of Hosea is for us also. What does God want you to understand? What does God want you to know about your spiritual life? Hosea does not leave us in the darkness. Look at what he says. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. Do we trust that God's ways are right and worthy to be walked on? Or do we try to argue with God's ways and try to explain them away so they could fit better in our way, in our desires? This is wisdom. To see and accept the ways of the Lord as right and to walk in them. Yet Hosea tells us that not everyone will walk in the way of the Lord. But transgressors stumble in them. Those who do not belong to the Lord will find fault with God's ways. They don't like God's ways. They will accuse the ways of God. They think God's ways will limit our freedom, or that they're boring, or that they're oppressive. Do you know people who think that way? Have you ever thought this way? Perhaps some of you thought this way about the book of Hosea. (laughs) That's oppressive. That it's not for us. Friends, Hosea ends his message with a call to repentance, a call to wisdom, and between these two calls, we have seen God's love song, a love that heals us of the idolatries of our own hearts, a love that helps us get a renewed vision of God. Let me ask you, will you walk away from this sermon series with a wise heart or a stumbling heart? Let us pray.